Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ravodio, sincerely hoping you don't have celiac disease because today's episode is unapologetically heavy on the gluten. Joining us today is the one and only Karen Palmer. Karen is an esteemed food writer, editor, and perhaps most importantly, she's one of Los Angeles's most passionate pro-pizza advocates. Karen gives us a wonderful guided stroll through her journey into the world of food writing and serves up some serious wisdom for anyone looking to turn their passion for food into a career. It's a fun and fascinating conversation which features a stint in culinary school, a stage at Felix's famed pasta laboratory, and a foray into running her very own French bread pizza pop-up. What does Kevin Bacon have to do with it? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. Father Saul also joins us today for the definitive Top Chef Season 20 post-mortem. We discuss topics of critical importance, including why Buddha might feel like a cuck despite winning, and we dole out yearbook superlatives such as most surprising contestant, best challenge, and most likely to succeed. And oh yeah, I'm contractually obliged to say that this segment also features Father Saul grotesquely basking in the glory of beating me at Fantasy Top Chef. Honestly, if you want to stop listening to this episode halfway through, I wouldn't blame you. I know I will. Without further ado, let's chow down. I am so excited to be joined today by food writer, editor, founder of Pam Pizza, and honestly, one of LA's pizza queens. It's Karen Palmer. Karen, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining. You know, I... uh I have been toying around with this idea in my head for the last week that you're kind of like the Kevin Bacon of the LA food scene. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. You get, really you get what praise. I'm saying? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I appreciate it, that. Thank you. It feels like anybody you think of in LA food, whether it's a food writer or you know, a restaurateur, six degrees or less, you get to Karen Palmer. I love that. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I'm Since I've been a food writer for so long, I'm used to asking the question. So I'm like a little bit nervous to be like talking about myself, but here we go. Let's yeah. Well, you know, we can talk about yourself, talk about food. There's any number of topics we can talk about. So love it. Uh, what exactly. are your LA stomping grounds? Um, so I live in Mar Vista. I spend a lot of time over here on the West side. I would say I am more of a West side girl. I mean, I love going East and um, I'm, I've been excited the past couple of years. There seems to be a little bit more happening over here food wise. So, um, you know, we've got some stuff going on over here on the West side. It's great. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you were at Eater for a while recently, right? Mm-hmm. Like a few months ago. I noticed yeah. a lot of West Side coverage while you were there. <laughs> totally. That was all me. I was like, okay, the West Side needs to get some love. But no, it wasn't It wasn't all me. But um, yeah, I mean, most of the team either lives um, on the East Side or South Bay. So like, yeah, it was nice to kind of have some focus over here as well because like, you know, there are some areas like Main Street in Santa Monica and even here in Mar Vista, like, you know, some exciting openings and things happening. Whereas I feel like a lot of time the coverage is Echo Park or Silver Lake or, you know, downtown or whatever. So it was, it was fun to talk about um, my neighborhood a little bit. Yeah. I have an East side bias for sure. Uh, I live in like <laughs> Northeast Los Angeles. Uh, so when Love my it. friend, my friend and co-host was here for a food crawl, uh, we started on the West side because I, I, you know, I'd read all about main street via you and via eater. Yep. And, you know, so we started off at heavy handed, uh, went over to mm-hmm. Crudo and Nudo, 
recently uh we had uh, my wife and i had dinner at isla which is awesome as well nice. yeah it's um, really good so so much happening on main street it's a little hot spot <laughs> yeah yeah crazy um what you're not from la originally though right no i'm originally from new jersey um shout out to the garden state oh yeah <laughs> i love new jersey <laughs> um i've been here for about um Almost, it'll be six years this fall, and um, was living in New York City before. I actually, um, I've bounced around quite a bit in my adult life. Um, after college, I lived in New York for a couple of years, then moved to San Francisco for about eight and a half years, then back to New York for about six years, and then out here. So I've been kind of like both coasts. Um, and I just, you know, I really love living in California. I do. There are things about New York that I, you know, definitely miss. And I love going back to visit. But I I kind of fell in love with L.A. over the past, like, decade or so of coming out here. You know, whether it was for work or for, um, you know, just personal trips to Los mm -hmm. Angeles. And, you know, I kind of got to a point in New York where I was like, why? am I not living in LA? <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, I was just kind of ready for different lifestyle, um, a bit of a change of pace. I was freelance at the time. So it was kind of like, you know, if you can work anywhere, then why not live where you will be happiest? So what did it for you? Younger. Was it, was it, uh, what, what was the final like straw that broke the camel's back? Was it taking your groceries on the subway? Was it, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, what, what did it? It was a you know, I think like New York, I love the energy in New York, but I feel like a lot of times you feel like the city is just kind of like fighting against you. Like everything is difficult. Getting groceries is difficult. Like you have to like going to a movie, just like I felt all the time, like just walking out of my apartment building, like something, something was like fighting against me. I think too, like I had just gotten to a point in my life where I wanted a little more space. I wanted more like mm -hmm. outdoor time, um, access to the outdoors. Um, you know, the living out here is pretty nice and it's, it's not necessarily easy, but I think the slower pace is really nice um, for old middle-aged people like me. <laughs> Honestly, for no matter where you find for everybody. yourself. Yeah. I, totally. I, I, uh, you know, especially like after the pandemic and whatnot, like it just feels like you could, if you can live anywhere, having a little bit of space, having some totally. room to breathe, I, you know, completely hear that. Yeah. Although it must've been hard to leave the epicenter of pizza for Los Angeles. <laughs> well, actually I feel like I left at a good time in the sense that like, right when I got here, um, you know, Pizzana had just opened fairly recently. I feel mm -hmm. like it was sort of the beginning of this pizza renaissance that's happened in LA over the past, like, you know, five or six years. Um, and obviously there were established places like Moza, you know, like the, the classics that were already here and doing great work, but I do feel like there's been this explosion of really, really good pizza. So, you know, yeah. I feel like it was kismet that I ended up here and all this great pizza stuff happened around the same time. Yeah. So. Is it it's like chicken or the egg? Did you cause it perhaps? <laughs> I mean, like I the demand all of a sudden was here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously. No, um, I don't think I caused it, but I do think like, I don't know, like it's, um, it's just been exciting to see like all the different styles and, you know, 
yeah. all across the city, different pizza places opening. And that, you know, the um, pizza festival a couple of weeks ago was like incredible. Just, and, you know, going both days and seeing, um, and I should, I should drop the name, you know, the LA, the city, wait, pizza city fest. Yeah. It's, it's confusing <laughs> like, name. I should know this. Yeah. Pizza John loves Steve, fest. but it's, yeah, it's a, it's Steve yeah. Delinsky, No, it was like. City fest. He did, and you know, they did an incredible job. I want to give a shout out to Steve and Carol Chin, who organized the whole thing. I thought it was so well done, like between the tastings and the the flow of the event. Um, but yeah, it was really exciting to see like all these LA and you know, yeah. mostly Southern California. There were a couple of Northern California places there too, but just all in one room and being like, oh wow, this is how much great pizza we have in this city that we're able to like have a two-day festival with like different vendors each day and like, you know, experience all the different kinds. So that was really, really fun. It was a real like almost coming of age moment in, in that like it, for LA's yeah. pizza scene in a way, like to your totally. point, like seeing everything in one place, you're like, I think, you know, you and I as pizza aficionados probably are aware of how much pizza, good pizza right. there is on the scene right now. But I think for a lot of people that were there and maybe just like, pizza curious, you know, uh, they, uh, <laughs> exactly. the pizza they were, curious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they were, you can have that one for free. They were, they were probably <laughs> like just mind blown by the variety, totally. the quality, you know? So what sparked sure. your love for food and pizza? Well, pizza and food in general. I, even though my, the name Karen Palmer does not sound particularly Italian. I am mostly Italian American. So I grew up with two like Italian American grandmothers who were great cooks. Um, I think that certainly, you know, there was always like an appreciation of, you know, holiday meals. And, um, you know, my family always sat down and ate dinner together. I mean, we were, you know, always pretty into food and like the, the tradition of it. Um, I also was very lucky as a kid to um, go and live in Italy for two years. My father was transferred there for work. Um, so when I was in fifth and sixth grade, we lived in, well, just outside of Milan and, um, no you know, got, yeah, it was really, it was like, you know, just, I think at the time, I mean, I think it was nine when we moved. So like, you know, my brother and I were like, mostly excited if we were traveling and there was like a city that had a McDonald's because it was <laughs> like we just wanted like like a taste of home but there weren't that many back then so and, you know and Italian McDonald's kind of slaps I don't know good. if it was yeah, yeah totally yeah, yeah. the one in Rome amazing <laughs> yeah. so like you know I think that also you know being in a completely different country and even though we can't you know grew up in an Italian American family just experiencing um through travel, different cuisines. And, um, you know, I think also that, you know, aside from being Italian American from New Jersey, no less, like, you know, that really also sparked my interest in just Italian food and pizza, like being able to eat all of that amazing food as like, you know, a fifth and sixth grader. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and then the, the, it's funny because I didn't really think about it in terms of a career until maybe my mid twenties, I'd always loved writing. Writing had always been like come pr pretty easily for me, like in school. And I worked on like the college newspaper, like a nerd <laughs> and um, like 
it wasn't until, yeah, like my early to mid twenties, um, the food network had just kind of started like becoming a thing. I mean, this is way before like all the competition shows and like what the food network is now. This is like, you know, the days of like Emerald Moulton and Emerald. Yeah. I mean, like, I hate even saying his name, but like Mario Batali, like there were like, like Bobby Flay. It was like very old school, like yeah. early days of the Food Network. So between that and I started reading like, you know, various um, like Ruth Reichel's memoirs and a bunch of other like, you know, food books and- Garlic like, and sapphires? Yes. Love that. Comfort me. Oh. No, wait. Comfort to the bone. Oh my God. No, comfort me with apples and tender uh, Yeah. There you go. That- <laughs> like- I know. I'm like, what are they called again? Yeah. Um, it was so long. Tender ago apples and comfort me. Those are those are different yeah, books. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so yeah, I decided that I wanted to be a food writer. So I this is during my San Francisco years. I went to culinary school, um, really with the goal of being a food writer. Um, I never really wanted to like work in a kitchen necessarily, or you know, run a catering company or anything. Um, started, I like cold emailed, um, an editor at a local magazine. Cause they had a great food section. It was called seven by seven. I was obsessed with the magazine, like landed an internship and then just yeah. kind of started, you know, the food writing career just sort of like fell into place from there. So that's cool. I feel like a lot of people need, like need the opportunities to come to them, but you really went out there right. and just like chased it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you know, in a lot of ways you, um, make your own luck and you have to yeah. like, you know, I mean, what, like, also like, what's the word I literally, I emailed, um, well, she became my boss and she's still a good friend of mine, my friend, Sarah Desert. And, you know, I just like found, like figured out her email said like, Hey, any chance you guys like needed an intern for the food department? They happened to be hiring. So it was just like, you know, it was lucky timing, but I do think you have to like take those steps in order to like create opportunities for yourself. So totally, totally good for you. Yeah. And, and culinary yeah. school, what was that like? Mm-hmm. Like, did you like, cause you said you're there like with the goal of becoming a food writer. There's probably right. people there with the goal of becoming like, you know, chef. Oh yeah. The next, what... the next food network star, whatever. No. Exactly. Um, it was really, I had never worked in a restaurant before. Um, I'd worked in, like in high school, I had worked at like a little like counter service place, like behind the counter, but I'd never cooked in a professional kitchen um, or actually even like waited tables, which is kind of crazy. Um, so for me, it was really like I wanted to get kind of a a really good foundation of knowledge just about how things are made. You know, this was a very um, classic program. Like we started with, you know, like the mother sauces and the, you know, very (laughs) French kind of, it was, you know, very, very old school. Um, but did classes and everything from, you know, butchery to baking and pastry, different like Asian cuisines, um, South American, like a little bit of everything. Um, I think the thing that was like the most humbling is like, I, I think I started when I was I think I went when I was 26 and there Mm -hmm. were, um, a lot of kids, I say kids cause they were, they were like kids right out of high school who wanted to make, you know, professional cooking 
um, their career. And a lot of those kids like did have real restaurant experience. So like I'm sitting there, like I can barely like chop an onion, you know, like (laughs) I basically had to go home and like practice my knife skills at night and stuff. And these kids are just like whipping through it. And like, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Um, I do feel like it helped, you know, just kind of like round out my culinary knowledge. Um, I certainly don't think it's necessary for a food writer, Yeah, but like, you know, for me, I think it was a good kind of basis of, of knowledge. Do you still have the knife skills? I'm okay. I mean, I was never like, yeah. I, I certainly improved, but I'm not like restaurant level um, <laughs> knife skills by any means. I can cook, but I'm not like, not professionally. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, I, I, everything I know from knife skills, I learned from the show, Selena and chef, uh, yeah, on HBO. That <laughs> was it. my, that was my core. Yeah, Love it. exactly. Love it. <laughs> That's really cool. And, and so you, after that, you know, you started seven by seven as, as an mm-hmm. intern, you said, and, and, you know, yeah. do you remember your first piece that you wrote? Oh God. Sorry to put you on the spot. No. Oh my God. I remember like, so I interned and I was doing mostly a lot of like fact checking and like research during the internship. I'm sure I got to write one or two like little things. Um, I did. So what ended up happening was there were two food editors and the like assistant or associate food editor, um, you know, actually again here talking about lucky timing, like right around the time I finished culinary school, the assistant editor left the publication. Mm -hmm. So there was an opening and my now, you know, boss and, you know, friend Sarah offered me the job. Um, So I do remember like my first big feature was um, like a holiday entertaining feature that was all different, um, recipes from like different chefs around town. So there was like Hmm. an appetizer from one restaurant, um, you know, a little salad from another place. Uh, it was really, it was fun. Like, you know, working with the the chefs and owners on the, like we like all tested the recipes and stuff. So that was, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I mostly, a lot of the coverage that I did was like, um, handling our like restaurant listings and stuff. So like I, it definitely, I got like a real crash course in like San Francisco dining, which was a lot of fun. So that's awesome. Worst place to be. No, <laughs> so, totally. What were like the yeah. hotspots when you were doing this? Oh God, um, Delfino was still and is still very popular. Um, there was a place down in the Mission called Range that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh man, like there were still a lot of the old school places like Fleur de yeah. Lee and like Massas and that kind of stuff that I actually like got to go to that were uh, incredible. This Planet Door was like uh-huh. fairly new at that point. I mean, it had been around for like a couple of years, but it was still, it hadn't even like, it was still down in the mission. It hadn't moved to the ferry building yet. So there were yeah. like, yeah. The good days like, of this Planet Door. Yeah. And I think, I think within my first couple years in San Francisco is when the ferry building actually opened like uh-huh. the whole, you know, marketplace and all the restaurants there and stuff. So like, yeah, it was a fun, it was a really exciting time to be there. You've obviously had a lot of different jobs in food writing and you've written mm-hmm. for a lot of different places. 
does yeah. one of your experiences really stand out among the others? Mm, oh my gosh. I think one of my favorite jobs for multiple reasons, mainly like partially because the people I worked with were so incredible. Um, and just like the content that we produced, um, I was a San Francisco editor for daily candy for several years, mm. which was like, you know, for people who aren't familiar with it, it was one of the first like email newsletter publications. And I really, really loved the, again, the team, the people that I worked with are like, a lot of them are still my really close friends. Cause it was like mostly women, just like incredibly talented, smart, funny, fun people. Um, but like we really, especially when I was working for the local edition, um, you know, just kind of like discovering and promoting um, or helping to promote like small businesses is something I've yeah. always really enjoyed. Like that, you know, helping people to find like the cool new place, but not, you know, maybe not the place that's like got a ton of funding or like yeah, you know, backing behind it, but like, it's just a really like special little gem. That's always like, in terms of what I do, that's always been one of my favorite um, parts of it. And um, yeah, like seeking out like trends and like seeing, you know, what like what cuisines are hot right now or like what um, what areas or neighborhoods yeah. or whatever. That's something I've always like really enjoyed. So it's the uh, it's the sounds like the Jonathan Gold ethos of introducing people to things that they may not. Totally. Have otherwise known. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. I would not refer to myself as a Jonathan Gold, but <laughs> that is definitely, yeah, it's like the helping people discover, um, yeah, cool new things. Hey, but going back to the Kevin Bacon uh, aspect, I'm sure it's not that many <laughs> degrees of separation to uh, Mr. Right. Gold. Um, True. Let's, let's go back and talk about your time in the kitchen because I read in your bio sure. that you had a stint at Felix. Is that right? I did. I did. I um right after I, maybe a couple months after I moved to LA, you know, I was freelancing. Um, I think, and this is not a knock on LA because I love living here. I do think when you first get here, especially I think other New York, former New Yorkers can relate to this. Like mm -hmm. the city can be a little isolating in that, like, yeah. you know, especially like if you're working for yourself, it's like, I was literally like, I was living in Venice at the time. Um, so it's like I'm sitting in my apartment working or I'm like in my car by myself to like go meet somebody. But there's a lot of like alone time. Um, yeah. So partially, you know, I I was very happy with like the work that I was doing in terms of the, the freelance stuff. But um, I was sort of obsessed with Felix since, you know, I lived in Venice. I'd interviewed Evan Funky for a couple of um, different stories. And, um, yeah, I just like really admired the work that they do and the attention to detail. And I mean that, you know, his pasta is amazing. Um, so I, it was partially like kind of wanting something where I felt like part of a community, but also, I don't know, I was kind of at the point where, I had been writing for so long and I wanted a mm -hmm. new challenge and, you know, it's like, writing and producing content um you're really you know you're sitting behind a laptop a lot you are like yeah. out in the field maybe reporting here and there but um you know the thought of like creating something with my hands and actually making something um was really appealing so i approached evan 
and asked him if I could intern in his pasta lab. See, this is, a, it's like me just being like, hi, can I work for you? How did that, um, did, <laughs> were you like, literally like you, you had interviewed him a couple times and then we're like, yeah. Yo. I asked him if we, like, I was like, I have a, you know, a question for you. I'm wondering if we can have a cup of coffee. And I just said, you know, I'm like, I have some culinary experience, but it's more just for me to learn. Um, and he said, yes. So a couple afternoons a week, I went and interned in the pasta lab. And I will tell you, I was like, almost no help to them <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> because like, it is the amount of, like I said, attention to detail and just, um, you know, specificity that they use is really, really impressive. And I'm just like, I'm a good cook. I would say I'm not that great with dough necessarily. So Interesting. I'm okay. Wow. But yeah, it's like, um, so it was really fascinating to be part of it, but it's not, you know, I was just going in a couple afternoons a week. And um, I've also, I've had this like sidebar, like this, um, business idea for a long time that involves fresh pasta. Um, okay. So are you going like to share it here? Share it here so we can attract idea. some investors. No. <laughs> I don't want anybody to steal my idea. Fair, <laughs> fair, idea. fair. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, and it was also just to see like, is this something I'm good at? Like would, yeah. you know, this it's part of the business idea that I have. So ultimately I think I would like outsource that part of it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was really fascinating to learn. And I, you know, like I said, I really just admire what Evan does and his skill and, you know, focus and attention to detail. So it was cool to be, to see that from the inside a little bit. Did you, had you made pasta before or, I mean, you went to culinary yeah, school. but I mean like, but like in culinary school or maybe like once in a while, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I can make. I could actually make very good fresh pasta like for myself, but that level, like the way that they yeah. like form the shapes and stuff, it's like you have to just train for hours and hours in order to get that mastery of it. So, and it's all ha does he, he hand rolls it, right? Most of it, there are some extruded shapes that he does, like the rigatoni and mm. um, something like, you know, spaghetti or whatever, but uh, a lot of them are hand shaped. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. and it's amazing because you look at them and they're like, oh, wow, they are all, like, I was perfect. trying to make orecchiette for, like, months. <laughs> no. And yeah, they were all perfect. <laughs> it was tough. See, that's, you know, I, I'm, all, I'm often asked about Evan Funky and, and, uh, and Felix and Motherwolf. And, you know, I'll be 100% I'll be transparent. I have, um, mm -hmm. well, I won't say made fun of or, or, like, poked fun at it in the past for his fanatic, right. his, his, like, fanatic dedication to al dente um right right, but, right but yeah i mean it is it is like you know on the uh definitely on the uh sharp side of toothsome let's say oh and, yeah uh, for, sure. for sure even for even for an italian right um and, and for an italian american but um i will say the the dedication to getting those shapes perfect is something that yeah. requires like maniacal dedication and totally yeah. Do they like oh, instruct you to like uh, uh, boil the pasta until it's barely like it's still raw or what? I mean, they have very until <laughs> it's still raw. Um, <laughs> I mean, they have very specific like cooking times and like how long they dry it, how long they store it. I mean, it's it's very very specific. I don't yeah. think I even 
I don't think I even cooked any pasta, actually. I was just trying to make the fresh pasta. Yeah. Well, the vision oh, of worst, labor. Worst intern ever. <laughs> hey, I'm sure that's not true. Uh, knowing, know, <laughs> Having heard some stories from the industry, I'm sure there's, uh, there's some seriously <laughs> problematic interns out there. True. This is true. I at least uh, showed up and, you know, did my job. And then, so, well, speaking of operations that you had a more uh, A to Z hands-on approach with, let's talk about Pan Pizza, your, uh, sure. your French bread pop-up that yes. you did, what, a couple years ago now? It was a couple, I think the last pop-up I did was probably almost two years ago at this point. So Pan Pizza was an idea that um, I had with a friend who's a sh- who is actually a chef, um, Nick Montgomery, who went on to open Conby with Akira Kudo. Um, this is before they had opened. I know, I know. It's such a bummer. The place was incredible. Um, yeah. It was like within probably six or eight months before they opened the original in Echo Park, we were just talking one night about like, you know, so many nostalgic foods have been updated or, you know, revamped or made mm-hmm. better with good ingredients, but like nobody had really done it with French bread pizza. So he and I were just like, let's do a pop-up. Um, so we had a pop-up in Silver Lake. We came up with the idea of the name pan pizza is partially, I mean, the French word for bread is pan. Yeah. Um, and like Exactly, exactly. And then the um, the kind of double meaning of it is that like, you know, when you would eat like a Stouffer's or Red Baron um, French bread pizza as a kid, like it like yeah. that texture like almost hurts your mouth because it's like ah. so crunchy. So it's like pain and bread. <laughs> so, That's good. Yeah. So we did our, we did our first pop-up together and um, it was like, a little place in Silver Lake. Um, I think it was called We Have Noodles. It's not around anymore, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, after that first one, Nick and Akira were like very much kind of full speed ahead on opening Conby. So I was like, all right, do you mind if I like just take this and run with it? And he was like, go for it. <laughs> so I became <laughs> the French bread pizza lady. Um, and yeah, it was like, it definitely had like a moment where it was, um, you know, I was doing pop-ups all over the city. Um, I, yeah, there was one point where I like maybe had one a week. I mean, it was like wow. a pretty regular thing. Um, the product sorry. itself. I just, I'm curious about the product itself. I'm one of my, you sure. know, regret, regrets in this pizza life is that I didn't get to try pan pizza in its well, original form. Maybe, maybe it'll come back someday. You never know. So yeah, the idea, like I said, was just kind of like, updating French bread pizza with good ingredients. So I worked pretty much exclusively with either um, Bub and Grandma's or Clark Street baguettes, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, would like pre-toast them and do some other stuff to get them to that like crispy texture. I made a sauce out of, um, with Bianco di Napoli tomatoes. Um, Let's see what else. I I kept typically the toppings were pretty classic um cheese yeah. pepperoni. I used sausage from Standings Butchery, which is a great butcher shop um mm-hmm. over in Hollywood and occasionally for different places like I did a pop-up at um you know Old Man Bar in Hatchet Hall mm-hmm. and um the owner was like let's do something fun so I they had like the 
their country ham on the menu. So I basically Ooh. did like a, a, like a Hawaiian pizza with like grilled pineapple and their country ham. Um, that sounds good. I did want, yeah, it was delicious. I mean, Hatchet Hall is great. Um, what else? I mean, like, Oh, I did like a, for what, a couple pop-ups, I did like a take on um, the barbecue chicken pizza at um, California Pizza Kitchen. Yeah. So it, was like, it was just fun. Like I really loved the like, you know, the marketing, the promotion of it, the um, getting to meet and work with all these people in the industry, like, you know, um, like actually Jonathan Strader, who then went on to open Little Coyote, was at Hatchet Hall at the time. Like Dustin Lancaster, who owns a bunch of places, did some pop-ups with him. Like it was just really, really fun um, to get to know and work with those people. And, you know, just yeah. it's a fun like side project. So See what I mean? See what I mean? The Kevin Bacon of the LA food scene. You know? <laughs> I know, right? yeah, uh, uh, well, the, totally. I think it's a brilliant concept because a yeah you're you're getting that nostalgia which I feel like is so right. so hot right now you know in terms of mm -hmm. like the totally. food that really so harkens to right that now. but also like there's so much, I think there's a, actually an, a lot of collab opportunities there like you just oh, brought totally. up the hatch yeah. hall one but you know like who wouldn't want their products on a on a pan pizza you know no totally and it was like yeah I mean. I popped up at bars, restaurants. Like it was like, yeah, it was really, really fun. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll bring it back. It was also, as all of these things are, a lot of work. Um, yeah. So like, you know, it's just kind of like I've been talking about bringing it back for like the last two years, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll throw up. Maybe I'll throw up a question on Instagram and see if anybody wants to host one. I what will happens. pre. I will preemptively vote yes. To the uh, okay, great. To, the, to whether you should bring it back to hosting it, I'm not sure I have the ability to do right. that. But yeah, um, okay. Look, I love it. I'm sure I could find a place. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, as you know, the, if Kevin Bacon can't find a place, who can? Exactly, who can? I want to get into the nitty gritty with you know our shared favorite food, and you know, yeah, we've heard a little Let's bit about it. your experience living in Italy, which is cool. It actually was very Stanley Tucci of you. Uh, he, right. he did that as well. And I think that that's one of his, you know, uh, he, he talks about that in terms of why he loves yeah. food so much, but where does your, we heard about your love for food. What about your love for pizza? Is that just like, you know, jer the, the Jersey, like it's in your blood. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just in my blood. I mean, like grew up eating great pizza in Jersey. Um, we had, you know, when I lived in Italy, we had a couple of favorite pizza places that we would go to as a family a bunch. Um, Do they I have mean, good pizza in, in Milan? I would say. I mean, it was okay. It was okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, we got to go, you know, to Rome and like some of the other places that are more classically known as like pizza destinations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's also just like, I who doesn't like pizza? Like pizza is a food that makes like 99% of people happy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. And I do, there is something interesting to me in just the, like, as we were talking about a little bit before, just like the different styles and the, how you can get creative with it. Um, I mean, you can basically put like almost anything on a pizza. So it's like, you know, I was fascinated actually at the pizza festival on the panel that I did um, chatting with like Ann Kim about how she, you know, puts kimchi and, you know, 
Korean barbecue on pizza. I mean, like it really is a vessel that supports almost Anything. any flavor. So yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking of Ann Kim the moment you said that too, uh, based yeah. on the panel. And then I went right home and watched the, uh, watch the chef's table pizza episode. And it's just incredible yeah. to see what, what she's been able to do, but you're absolutely right. Totally. Like, you can do anything with pizza and it's not just the, yeah. not just the toppings, but the doughs too. The like, dough. The st- yeah. And I mean, like, think about like, you know, here in LA we've had, like, there's been kind of a like Detroit style pizza mm-hmm. boom recently. Um, you have people who are doing like very class, like, you know, Evan doing Roman pizza. Um, Daniele has kind of like created his own style at Pizzana. I mean, like, there's just like, yeah, there's so much you can do with it. So have have you been to Fred Eric's spot, the LA Pie downtown? Or no, Pie LA? Okay. No. Highly recommend that. It is it is uh Detroit style-ish, but he uh-huh. uh he uses uh kombu water instead of just water. Oh, cool. So that yeah, is, so it gives, so it, gives it, it like a, a little really- extra. Exactly. Exactly. A little extra cool. something, something. So highly recommend that. I but just that. when you were talking about like, you know, the, uh, the different styles, that's what it reminded yeah. me of. So, you know, based totally. on your, on your social media presence, you, you seem to gravitate towards Roberta's in Culver city. I do is that right? Roberta's a lot. Yeah. It's, it is true. I mean, I just find them to be very consistent. Um, you know, having lived in New York, it's like, it feels like a little taste of home a little bit. Um, and yeah, I just, look, I also think like, and this is not a knock on Roberta's, but in LA you find your favorites that are like close or close-ish to home. Like Roberta's yeah. is very convenient for me. Um, I also, uh, I do like to be a regular at different restaurants. Um, and I think like, you know, at this point, I have a, my friend Caitlin and I go there like all the time. Like we know a couple of the bartenders really well. We sit at the bar, they treat us really nicely. Like, it's just like yeah, the overall experience. I also think that like Roberta's and I will say this about um, Ronan and, uh, and Pizzana too. Like, I just like that they are restaurants where like the pizza is incredible, but also like everything else that they do is oh, really yeah. delicious. Like the salads and the, the sides, the Roberta's burger is delicious. You know, like hmm. you could, and I have gone there actually and not eaten pizza and had like an incredible meal. So, I don't believe it. I you know, don't it sounds believe crazy. It. it sounds crazy, but it's happened. Um, so yeah, I think it's like the consistency and just like, and I love like, you know, you could go and have a great cocktail. Like it's just kind of like the full experience. So for yeah. a dinner out, it's like a nice destination it doesn't feel anything like the original but you know that's i you know never been to the original i was going to ask you how does it how how does it compare is it i mean the pizza similar the pizza is similar but the vibe is like completely different because i think like actually a a writer for eater um wrote a piece a couple years ago that was like you know oh so is roberta's basically just like upscale mall pizza now which like it kind of is like they're opening (laughs) at the platform they opened at the sportsman's lodge yeah it's just like the original is much more like just kind of gritty and feels more like almost like a bar i mean it's not upscale like high design you know yeah bright like bright light i don't know it's like 
it's very different. Totally. We're getting that but a the lot food in is still great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, feel, feel like we're getting that. Like, yeah, well, it's not just the upscale mall, but it's like, I mean, yes, we love our upscale malls. Shout out Sportsman's Lodge. Love but them all. I think that's a really great point about how the successful ones have come here and tailored their concepts a little bit to the city. The one that comes to mind that I went to recently is Angler, uh, which mm-hmm. Angler 2.0 especially has really tailored the, their menu to like try to, you know, pay some homages to the Los Angeles food culture and scene. Um, the thing I worry about is like the Las Vegasification of the Los Angeles mm. food scene and whether it's kind of like, you know, with Hollywood, we have all these remakes and we have all these like, you know, reboots. Right. I would hate for the LA food scene to just be that and to really diminish the original concepts. Yeah. Maybe I'm just like, you know, not, a, a not on my lawn kind of guy, but I, uh, I, I don't think I am. I get that. No, I get that. And I think like, yeah, you don't want like everything to feel the same or homogenous or like, it's basically like all LA restaurants being a Marvel movie. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but I think like, yeah, I mean, I think the, we have our, our, a very strong, you know, hometown hero presence. So I don't think that's like, see what I did there? Superhero, hometown hero. Um, (laughs) You're a writer. You're a writer. I think, yeah, I, I personally don't worry about like, you know, too many people coming from other cities and kind of like taking that away. Yeah. Look, LA, it's big enough for all of it. Right. And I I do think it's been encouraging that like all of this, uh, all of the, the superhero reboots, if you will, haven't taken away from the original concepts. We're still seeing lots of them. So yeah, totally. Exactly. For now. Exactly. So, so on pizza, where else, what else are you really liking in LA right now besides Roberta's, of course? Okay. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I do love pizzana. I think like not only because the pizza and all the other food is delicious, but Daniele is one of the nicest, kindest people in the world. So uh, I just want to give him a shout out because he's like the best. Um, I really like Pizzeria Say. I think that mm. um, it's absolutely delicious. Um, I'm actually going back next. I haven't been in a minute, so I'm going back next week. Um, Jealous, but yeah, yeah, it's like it's so, so good. good. Yeah, um, and that guy, he I forget the chef's name. I think his name is William Jew. I could be wrong, but he mm-hmm. uh, he used to work for Daniele. Yeah, 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 exactly. So He's trying. And at Soto, I think too. So yeah, it's like he's had like incredible training and I like that he's doing his own, you know, kind of Tokyo pizza style. It's so, so delicious. Um, The crust is like out of this world. Um, I also love quarter sheets. I think like Mm -hmm. they do, um, you know, the, the fact that Aaron does like a couple of different styles of pan pizza is really interesting. He works with like really, really good ingredients. Hannah's desserts Desserts. are- spectacular so it's like you're getting the best of both worlds in one place and it's just like a fun quirky you know little restaurant like i i did a profile of them um for eater when i was there and like just and they're like they're just cool they're they care about what they're doing but they're like having a good time i like i just i like the vibe that they've created um it's really cool i am i love yeah love pizzeria bianco i mean Avi, Avi, you know what's crazy? <laughs> I, I went, 
I went, so I've been to the one in Phoenix. I, uh, I, okay. I drove there when I was in college with my buddy. I actually like weirdly mm-hmm. had an interview in Phoenix and my buddy was nice. like, I didn't drive at the time. And he's like, I will drive you, but I have two conditions. One, we have to spend a night in Joshua tree camping. And two, we have to go to pizzeria nice. Bianco when we're in Phoenix. Um, so I was like, okay. yeah, I'm fine by me. So we did that. Yeah. Um, incredible experience. I've only been for lunch here in LA so far okay. where they were doing like more New York style slices. It's just Got impossible it. to get a, it's impossible to get a reservation, you know? It is. It is tough. I think so. Now they've opened up. They're doing this pretty much the same menu at lunch that they're doing at dinner. Um, mm. So I don't know if maybe I went like two weeks ago with my parents, but they had just opened the lunch reservations. I literally, I like got on my laptop. I was like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm getting a reservation. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if now that they have lunch reservations, if it's a little easier. But yeah, it is. It's a tough. It's a tough table to book, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, so. it deservedly so, it sounds like. Yeah. It's, I mean, the Rosa pizza, it's one of the best pizzas I've ever had. It's so good. Like pistachio, onion, red onion, um, parmesan, some rosemary. It's like so simple, but like, yeah. I don't know. It's like, it, you also think about like before him, who would be put it in the US, who would be putting like pistachios on a pizza? That would have, must have been like a, you know, a revolutionary idea. Totally. So, I mean, it, yeah. he is truly a pioneer. Um, um, another yeah. member of the panel, you uh, you you moderated yes, yes. over at Pizza City I Fest. Know, that was great. That was so fun. Although I, you know, he unfortunately kind of had to be in Phoenix at the last minute, but I was so glad that he beamed in and joined us. It felt very high tech. It was, so it, it, was it was high tech. It was like a mix of high tech and also like, so primal in his like wisdom totally he just has this like you know like the way of speaking and whatnot that's like almost otherworldly it's crazy right that's why they call like the yoda of pizza and it's like it's so true i um i profiled him for eater as well um Basically, I was like, I'm just going to write about all the pizza places that I work in the <laughs> West Side. That's what I'm going to do. I um, love it. And, and no, he was, it was such a great interview. Um, I was actually ugh, so embarrassing. I was really late and I hate being late. And especially for somebody who I respect so much, but he was like yeah. the most gracious, kind person. And we ended up talking for like, two hours. I, I apologize like 50 times. And by the end, he was like, look, just maybe don't be an asshole the next time somebody's late for you. I was like, that's a great point. <laughs> oh my God. Like even that just like little nugget great. of wisdom is like. Totally. I was like, I was like, okay, perfect. But yeah, yeah. Um, he was, yeah. I'm trying to, do we, do you want some other pizza places that I'm. Honestly, no, we could probably talk pizza all day. So I, uh, I think you, you've that's given true. our listeners. I've covered 20, it. Okay. You've given our listeners plenty to think about, honestly, when it comes yeah, to pizza. Totally. Um, and uh, you know, by the time they've gotten a reservation at Pizzeria Bianco, too, you know, their their lives will yeah, be over. Sure. So they won't <laughs> even be able to. Like the end of the yeah. year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's it. go back to the topic of of regular. So you know, I I've mm-hmm. I noticed in doing my research. Okay, I the only so Hillstone seems to be a favorite of yours. <laughs> Hillstone, sure right? Is. I love so, it. I love it. Hillstone. Uh, what? Okay. People who know food seem to be obsessed with Hillstone in terms yeah. of like restaurant operation and quality. 
Yeah. Break that down for me, if you will. So I think it's a combination of like several things. One, they do have great service. You know, they have very, although it's funny because I've heard from some people that they think that this, that it's too like methodical or robotic, like it doesn't feel Mm. genuinely warm, but they do, you know, once you sit down within a certain number of minutes, somebody is supposed to come and like take your drink order. They're just like, they're very attentive without, to me, feeling like it's over the top. Um, Mm. So, you know, it's like sit down at the table and I know that I'm going to have my ice cold Hendrix martini and like (laughs) at least like 10 minutes later, you know what I mean? Like it's a very, they have very set up like strict um, rules around service. Um, And they just do like little things without you having to ask, like if they see that, you know, you order the spinach and artichoke dip and you're low on the tortilla chips that they serve with it, which is such a weird move, but it works. Um, You know, they'll just like automatically refill it or with um, one of my favorite moves is that if you have a martini, um, if they see that, you know, you've been drinking it for a while, you're like halfway through, um, they'll bring you a fresh cold glass and like pour the martini into the cold glass. So it stays cold. Wow. Um, And then I just, you know, the food is like, yeah, it's like, it's a nice touch. Yeah. Um, and I just think like the food itself is always really good. Like, is it going to like change your life? No, but like they make everything from scratch. They even bake their own bread for the sandwiches. So like it, you know, it tastes fresh. It tastes homemade. It tastes like, like one of my favorites is there. It's called the Ding's crispy chicken sandwich. I don't know who mm. Mr. or Ms. Ding, Ding yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, it's just like, it's a really, like the bread is great. Um, it's like a very thin chicken cutlet with a crunchy, like vinegary slaw and, um, a little bit of mayo tomatoes, but the tomatoes are really good. I hate when you get a bad tomato on a sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um, and like randomly a slice of cold cheese, which like doesn't really make sense, but again, it just all works, you know? So it's like, you can go and have. Yeah, you can go. I know the cold cheese. The cold like, cheese, I don't, I don't know, yeah. But it it tastes great. Um, so yeah, I think it's like food quality service, and like any chain restaurant would aspire to have is you know consistency. So yeah, it's always yeah. going to be good. And have that's you why been to a Hillstone? I, I have. I went to. I went to. Okay. I, I I was part of this like hospitality. Uh, group like career group in uh, in college when I was like trying mm-hmm. to definitely figure out how can I make this a career and they took yeah. us to uh, the Hillstones in Pasadena to do like a tour of their oh, nice. yeah, yeah. and everything and that was that was super interesting and I have gone I don't know that I've been to Hillstone itself actually but I have been to mm-hmm. South Beverly Grill and I've been to oh yeah, and yeah. I went to uh, Bandera R.I.P. Um, okay. Yeah, you've 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 done your fair share of of Hillstone yeah. properties. I, I've done the round. I miss Bandera too. That was a good one. I, you know why I went there? There was a show on the Food Network called um, "Best Thing I Ever Ate," and uh, mm-hmm. there was one of their like you know celebrity chef people who was talking about the best banana cream pudding they'd ever had was from Bandera. So, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I went, I was like broke as a joke, 18 years old, Los Angeles. Like I, I, I just literally went there just for the banana cream pudding. I probably I love looked it. so out of place. 
Um, but also like those restaurants aren't cheap. So you're like, uh, can I have your $20? <laughs> like yeah. pudding, please. Thank you. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't eat for like a week after that, you know, but it yeah, was worth exactly. it. It was worth it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now I can say I did it. Being a regular at a restaurant, I think is a really hard thing to achieve in Los Angeles in this mm-hmm. day and age, because part, partly I think it comes down to like our city and the way it's spread out. Mm-hmm. But also if yeah. you're someone who like loves food, you are constantly trying to try different places. <laughs> you know, you're like, it's, right, it's, right, right. I, it, it's it, it, to become a regular, you know, you got to really have, you know, a commitment, you know? So right. I, I want to hear your pitch for the values of becoming a regular. Yeah. Like bring back being a regular. That should be your campaign. Yeah, it should be. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's just, I've, I would say like my being a regular at a place started um, in New York. I used to, I lived in Chelsea. Um, This is like, you know, shortly before I moved to LA. Um, And I used to go to this restaurant called the Red Cat all the time that unfortunately also is no longer with us. RIP. It was so great. Um, but it just became a place where like, I love going, sitting at the bar and this is, you know, I'm mostly regulars at places where I dine alone, which I actually really enjoy. Um, but like, yeah, it's like sitting at the bar, having a conversation with the bartender or server, um, the Red Cat specifically, because it was in Chelsea, there were always just like interesting people there who you would end up striking up a conversation with, um, yeah. whether it's, you know, this guy owns the gallery next door or, you know, so-and-so's also in the food. And just, like, there were just always, always, always interesting people. So my pitch for like being a regular is twofold. I mean, it's, you know, it is, you have a sense of community within the restaurant. Like I also do love exploring new places. And that's one of the reasons why LA is so great is that there's like endless possibility to try a new restaurant or food truck or whatever the the case might be. Um, but like, you know, like I was saying to you earlier about Roberta's, like, you know, it's like kind of buddies with the bartenders. Now you get treated very nicely. They know your order. It's like, it's a like, yeah, like a lower stakes um, proposition because like, you know, <laughs> if it's a place you love, you know, it's going to be good. Like, you know, you're going to get good service. Um, so yeah, it's like, as much as I love the exploration and discovery, I also just love like the comfort of being treated well and, you know, feeling kind of at home at a restaurant. So. Yeah. Well, to your point, you were saying earlier, like Los Angeles can be a tough place to come and find your spots. Like not like it it can be an isolating place, especially because it's so spread out. And I feel like, you know, what better, what better experience than to be able to go somewhere you feel comfortable at home, get a nice meal see a friendly face. Um, I feel like if anything, people should do that more in LA. Yeah, it's true. I agree. Yeah. I fully support that. You've won me over. Bring you know, back being yeah. a regular. Yeah. You don't have <laughs> to start a campaign. Yeah. Or, or it's, it could, could be be a book idea. I don't know. You know, a collection yeah, of essays, sure. you know, who knows how this could yeah. shape up. Who knows? Um, who knows? Thank you so much. Is there, you know, I, 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 I don't have like a very good at the end of the podcast, you know, like a, a typical question of like, oh, your last meal before you die or something like that. Right. Um, <laughs> well, but, I think you know what mine would be. <laughs> Uh, I have, I have a couple guesses. Yeah. Um, uh, but I did want to ask you, 
you, you've been so successful in going out there and, and making a career for yourself in food and, and having experiencing really awesome success, meeting so many people, seeing so many different facets of it. What would you say mm-hmm. to someone who is looking to make a career in food, whatever right. it may be, writing, you know, or, or social media, what it, whatever it may be, what would you say to them? I mean, I think, you know, I think especially with food writing and um, like getting into food media, a lot of it, you know, just like start, I mean, it sounds like so old school at this point, but like even just starting a blog or starting to do things kind of on your own, even if you're not necessarily getting paid for them yet, I think there's like a lot of opportunity to showcase what you're interested in, whether it's a blog or even like using your social media. I mean, if you look at my social media, you know, pretty quickly, like what I'm <laughs> into it's, you know, pizza and pasta and car selfies. I don't know. But um, <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's like, I think there's a lot of opportunity to use um, the tools that are already out there to kind of like build a, I hate the like brand for yourself, but like, you know, get your interests and what your passions are out there. And I think too, like, I mean, like you did an amazing job of like using social media to like the, the countdown, you know, doing pizza and sandwiches. I mean, like it creates a platform that like, you know, people notice and start to follow. And like, I think, I think using social media in that way is so, so smart. And I think it's also, you know, like it's scary, but, um, pitching editors and trying, you know, especially if you've had, if you have a blog or you have some work on your social media or whatever, like it's already showing your voice and your um, talent a little bit. Yeah. Starting to pitch freelance stories to editors. And like, like I said earlier, I think there's a lot to just creating luck for yourself and just kind of going for it because I mean, the worst that can happen is somebody says no, but we keep trying. So. I love that. That's great. Great advice. And you know what? Uh, you were so complimentary of my account. We're going to have to have you back on the podcast more often. Oh, you know? thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to. Can I be a regular? No, I'm kidding. Hey, honestly, we should have like, yeah, yeah. Karen's Pizza Corner or something. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I definitely love it. make that happen. Karen, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Oh, if they're looking for me, they can find me on Instagram at at Karen L. Palmer. My website is karenlpalmer.com. So I'm pretty, pretty easy to find. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, know, you. This is so much fun. See you at a Hillstone soon, I guess. I know. Seriously. Let's have a martini. <laughs> Love it. Thanks to Karen Palmer for coming on the show today. We're now transitioning to a part of the show that I have been frankly dreading. Uh, it's time to <laughs> welcome back to the podcast a Top Chef scholar with absolutely no friends or life whatsoever. It's Father Saul. Father Saul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. As you pointed out, I'm someone with their priorities in, or- in order. It's Top Chef over everything. Uh, and I think that level of commitment came through in our final fantasy Top Chef score this year. Your parents must be so proud you finally have accomplished something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked about it a lot last weekend when I saw them. And uh, they seem more miffed than proud, but I'll take what I can get. Yeah, at this point, that's a compliment. Look, <laughs> because you care about this so much and I don't at all, 
I am going to do something different today. We're going to flip it, and you're going to run the show here, buddy. I'm your guest. I love it. I love it. I've been waiting for this day to come. I feel like I've deserved it for a long time. Uh, the, the natural host of the pod, your daddy, Father Saul, taking control, finally. And uh, I will I will kick it off with some pain for you by recounting to you our final Top Chef fantasy score. All right, give it to me. Luca, you came in with a solid 89 points. It's not uh, bad. It's not bad. Point. It sounds good. It sounds good. Without, it, it, without any context or comparison, it sounds good. 89 is a nice big number. Saul finished with 266. <laughs> this was this is the biggest beatdown I think in any competitive like game we have ever tried one on one. I think that's probably right. This is the equivalent of getting trolled in beer pong, right? Like I would have to sit yeah. under the table for several games after this one. Probably that's right. Yeah, Take, you, you'd be taking tequila shots. You'd be getting slapped in the face. All sorts of punishment be coming your way. That's yeah. before we even get to the beer pong game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just your little warm up, and we will get to your punishment for this particular uh, this particular performance. But you and Daniel at Spork uh, Sporkful, right? Had no, a uh, uh, forking around. Forking don't around. Get, edit that out. Confused. Don't get them confused. Forking Seriously. around, which uh, forking around, which I love, and and. <laughs> And, and Daniel, I think, was an excellent guest. I actually really, really liked his his takes and uh, and the reactions you guys guys had uh, to to the Top Chef finale. And I wanted to ask you even more directly because you guys kind of touched on this. I think Daniel even proposed it a couple times. Do you think Buddha deserved to win the finale of Top Chef this year? Yeah, we went through the judging round by round to decipher who won each round. And when you look at it super legalistically like that, absolutely Buddha deserved to win. I think if Sarah had cooked her liver properly or had been able to purchase the sweetbreads that was her initial plan, mm. then I think we could have been having a different conversation. But because she undercooked her liver and because Buddha edged out Gabri at every single round – it pains me to say this, but I believe Buddha deserved to win. Yeah, I think I think you might be right on technicality, and I will. And in fact, I don't know if you saw this. Tom Colicchio on Twitter, someone someone tweeted uh -huh. at him, "Hey, just based on like reading reading the judges' table, if Sarah had cooked her liver right, would she have won?" And Tom was like, "Yes, he confirmed <laughs> that she would have won." That feels like is he allowed <laughs> to say that? If I was one I of the other judges, I would be pissed. I'd be like, Tom, you, you can let people under the curtain or behind the curtain of our deliberations here. That's a sanct that's a sacred space. You can't you just can't be sharing that information. <laughs> I, he's the god, man. He can do whatever he wants. He yeah. he, he is he is the Zeus of the Top Chef world. So I think he he do he does what he pleases. But I will say, I, I, and I think you're right that technicality, Buddha was was the winner, deserving winner. Of course, also season wide performance was deserving. I will say something that we discussed going into the finale, though, was, you know, amidst my beatdown of you and Top Chef Fantasy, I needed to land the plane, right? I needed to get the, I needed yeah. to have the champion win. Otherwise, I'm the 2016 Warriors, 73 wins, and then choke the, choke the finals. Watching that, despite having the winning contestant in Buddha, I kind of felt like a loser. Because, Why? because I think Sarah got the moral victory. Is it better? Like it, it feels almost worse to know. In fact, Sarah did beat Buddha, 
if not for a slight technical mistake. It's almost like, I mean, Buddha, I almost feel bad for because he knows he kind of cooked the second best. He made the second best menu. He had the second best ideas and Sarah beat herself. She yeah. didn't, he didn't really beat her. So, and I was frankly, I think by the end, almost rooting for Sarah, Sarah and Amar, two of my favorite contestants on, on the show to kind of land it and to see Buddha win almost by default kind of was, was almost felt more, felt more cucked for lack of better term than <laughs> even for, than even uh, Sarah winning outright over my two contestants. So it was an emotionally confusing time for me and, and one where, uh, and, and you and Daniel did a beautiful job of breaking down all the, all the nooks and crannies and twists and twists and turns of that finale. But it stayed with me for a while where I was like, I don't know if Buddha really, if he was the really the true winner or the moral winner of Top Chef season 20. Yeah, it's a great point. And I know that if anybody cares about this distinction, it's probably Buddha, right? Like mm-hmm. as a student of the show, as a super fan of the show, I'm sure if he doesn't feel like he actually cooked better than Sarah, it's probably eating him alive. So honestly, that's a victory enough for me. <laughs> um, well, with that, one of the things I've been looking forward to for a long time is our step back on what has been, I think, one of the most successful seasons of Top Chef in its history. Oh, yeah. I think we should dole out some awards, dole out some awards, some superlatives, reflect on a great time together, at least for me, uh, <laughs> on a difficult time for you. Uh, but even so, I'm curious to see how you would uh, how you would characterize some of the categories you have set up. So I'm going to go through and name some awards, name some categories, and I would love to hear your reaction to each. For example, who would you name as the biggest surprise of the season? You and I did a draft at the very beginning, right before episode one. Who did we most misjudge, or who were you most surprised by, especially given we didn't know a lot of these contestants from the world? I love this, first of all. I think we should be doing yearbook superlatives for every single thing (laughs) we talk about, so 100% into this. Biggest surprise. So I did some thinking about this. Initially, I was going to give it to someone who overperformed because that seemed mm. like the natural way to go, right? There were a lot of chefs when we did our draft we had never even heard of. Uh, yeah. And, you know, at least me, I can put my hands up and say I went completely off of vibes and prejudices and, frankly, stereotypes <laughs> when I was doing the draft. And that surprise, surprise was not the way to go, it turns out. So I decided to go a different way, and that is who underperformed the most. And to Mm. me, no single person underperformed more than Don Burrell. If you recall, she was, what, top four in our draft? Top five, definitely. Mm -hmm. Was she number two? she She was my number two pick, meaning that she was the number three overall pick in the draft. Number three overall pick. And that's Markel Fultz numbers, right? That's like... Or did he go one? It's He went one. Let's not talk oh. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Uh, regardless, number three is a ridiculously high pick, and Don Burrell went there. And I checked it. She went home episode two. In terms of, in terms of how high they went into the draft versus how early they exited, I'm not sure it can get bigger in terms of surprise. So that's my award for biggest surprise of the season what do you got uh first of all that's a great shout because i didn't even think about flipping it i was completely in the overperformer zone and i'm really glad you called this out because it was one of the true shocks i was all in on don don 
in her season 19 Portland performance, I, I one of the reasoning, reasonings for me picking her number two on my team was that she'd never cooked a bad meal. Every Even when she had failed, it was for time and management and stuff like that, but she didn't cook bad food. And I my thinking was, oh, well, she'll come in, she'll still cook great food and hopefully have the time management in order. She did not, one. And two, she actually cooked like bad food. It was like this black rice kanji that completely didn't work. Um, so that's a great, and I think that actually might be the biggest surprise. Mine was going to be my friend Charbel, who I picked last overall on my team and who ended up, he made it relatively far in the season. It was like, it was past midway point, but before Restaurant Wars, I believe, just before, but then performed really well on Last Chance Kitchen, coming all the way to Last Chance Kitchen finale. Now, Charbel was one where just, again, on vibes. And to be clear, when you say you were picking picks on stereotypes, I think we should clarify, maybe not like your <laughs> typical or racial stereotypes, but like private, oh, yeah. you know private me. chefs, my, my, right? Oh, Caterers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not my typical racial stereotypes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tough wording yeah. for you. I'm sorry about that. Somebody's going to clip that. Uh, yeah. No, based not, on- not, not not the traditional, not traditionally what people like people think of when they think stereotypes, but stereotypes of top chef, which is that yes. private chefs and caterers typically exactly. don't don't perform super well. Those kinds of things, plus uh, reading their bios and their narratives, looking for those sort of like narrative strong points that are typically that like, you can kind yeah. of see in your head the movie playing out. Right? It's like, oh, mm. you know, single parent, that kind of thing. Right. To me, I, which is again horrific way to do it, but this is television at the end of the day. It is. It's such an illogical way to go about doing this draft because what you have to realize is no matter who wins, they will just retrofit a narrative onto it. It doesn't matter what their background is; they'll find a way. Buddha, the the repeat winner who already had like kind of squeezed all the narrative personal juice, wins the season. So hopefully, you have a lesson learned there. Charbel, I remember reading his bio, and it was like. 25 year old Jim Bro private chef. And I was and, like, forget and it. And he chose to live in Florida, which yes. massive red flag to massive me. Massive red flag. And on top of all that, Middle Eastern, one of my least favorite cuisines. And I was like, <laughs> stuck at the very end, I was stuck with him. And I was like, oh, God, this guy kind of looks like he's a kind of a douche Jim Bro living in Florida. Uh, and I was, I was not. A little bit of a shamit face, a little bit of a loser face. Yeah, 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 that's right. A little bit of shamit face. Absolutely correct. And comes in, he's hilarious, he's warm, he's kind, he's personable and talented. I I would have been happy to see him in the finale, and he very nearly made it to Paris. Um, and, And I totally was blown away by how cool he was. How interesting! One of the most interesting dishes of the season. His his week one onion layered onion like flavored dish, which I think was supposed to be the vegetarian dish challenge, and the judges were blown away. He brought it back and won. I almost won again with it. Um, so so he was my biggest surprise. Someone who look we all we had at the beginning of the season was the cover to judge. I judged him by his cover, and I was wrong. Happy happy to be wrong about him. Do we have to agree on this award, or is it kind of like you have yours mm-hmm. and I have mine? I think it's interesting for us to like of of the nominees that each of us put forward, we choose who's the biggest surprise. And of these two, I would say I think you're correct on Don. Don was a shock exit to me. Yeah, I I agree. When we laid out our case, I think that the Don you just described it. It was a shock, not a surprise, right? So that mm-hmm. kind of to me nudges the scale. Exactly. And I'll even add too, we knew Don, right? So we had expectations. Like Charbel, like we're we're like kind of jokingly being like, ah, Jim Bro. 
but we don't know him. He could have been yeah. anything, and there was still space for that. Don, we thought we knew, and then she subverted our expectations by by crashing out early. So I think I think you picked the picked the biggest surprise of the season, Don Burrell crashing out at week two. I finally won something. <laughs> it feels so good. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pick some dives here for you, just so you can like win, feel good about yourself <laughs> heading out here. No, um, but let's go. Let's go. Kind of following the Charbel piece a little bit. But I want to know who was your best personality of the season, undefined. Whatever you want to take that angle of personality question, who who did to you stood out as like a chef with like a particularly magnetic, let's say, or that you were excited to see again on screen personality? I I think I liked my favorite one was Gabri. Um, hmm. I, I voted for him in best personality. I was thinking about this in terms of. A, who made a bunch of friends in the house, right? That means people gravitated towards them. And Gabri seemed to be someone who, you know, at the, at the start, he was really tight with like Begonia and Luciana. And then as the show progressed, he got really tight with like Tom, which was kind of a fun odd, cop, odd couples mix match. And also I judged it based on when they did their cut to camera interviews who made me like chuckle the most mm. and uh, his whole like Mexican ESL slightly lecherous thing, like really, <laughs> really, I, I thought made for great television. So, and also personal story, you got to give it to him. He had a, he had a hell of a personal story and it just made you want to root for him the whole way through him making it to the final honestly could have been up there for biggest surprise. So mm. that personality, my vote is Gabri. Great shout also on the surprise in terms of his overall run. Also a great shout just in terms of, in terms of a choice here. Gabri didn't didn't cross my mind for this award, but he's totally deserving for it. And I think part of the reason is because in week one he spilled Don he spilled like beans water in oh, Don's yeah. dough, and I think that gave me like a negative bent towards Gabri the whole time, even though he was on my team. But by the end, he was totally charming, totally cool. He talked about wanting to make out with every dude on the planet imaginable, soccer players, French guys. It was always really funny. Like, uh, and, and, he, and he, by the way, also cooked an excellent finale meal. I yeah. should also say, there were points where I thought Gabri could win over Buddha, even after Sarah undercooked her liver, just because he was being bolder and like really like pushing the limits. And I think the chefs, uh, the judges, were actually more excited by Gabri's food, and I thought that was a real credit to him. Yeah, I mean, if you told me at the start of the season that Gabri was going to walk away with a silver medal after all of this, I wouldn't have believed mm. you, or, or especially after not see, after seeing the first one or two episodes, right? After having seen him yep. cook, kind of seeing his like frantic demeanor in the kitchen, uh, which yeah. I think was responsible for the incident you just you know brought up with yep. him spilling something <laughs> into John's uh, beans or lentils or whatever it was, but the fact that he did so well and he, he, you know, kind of exceeded at least my expectations and did it with that humor and friendliness and, um, you know, personal grit as well. He's got my vote. It's a fair vote. I think my choice on this one might edge yours though, because Amar is just the most likable guy on the planet. Yes, he is. What are you doing? No. See you doing the jack off motion at me. <laughs> no. Habibi and and Bappi, great dynamic, best relationship we've seen on the show. He's warm, he's funny. Even when he had like kind of tanked Sarah the first time around in the Wellington Challenge, he still picked him again. Sarah herself, by the way, also a great personality, I should say. Had to do yes. her, she was my second choice. But Amar is just like, 
just someone you want around you in the kitchen. He's supportive. He's funny. He's like dopey, but still highly competent as we saw yet again. And I like that like mix of expectation versus reality. Um, there was a moment in the season where we were joking that like, is he just like pool sharking everyone? He's like pretending not to do, he like in the Indian challenge, he's like, I've never done Indian food. What's cumin? And then like fucking wins the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like, and so he, he was mine. One that I would, I'm going to be sorry to see go from the top chef world because I'll always hang out with a bar. The reason I'll give this one to you is because there's an, an empirical case to be made here. I don't hmm. know if you caught this, but during the finale, and leading up to the finale during the commercial breaks, they were showing a poll that they were doing for fan favorite chef and they were going to be awarded $10,000. And the final of the fan favorite came down to Amar versus Sarah. I'm not mm. actually sure who won, but the fact that Amar was a finalist in that definitely bolsters your point that he was, you know, well-liked. I will ask you, does the whole MAGA thing uh, sway you at all? <laughs> At the risk of I, at the risk of alienating our MAGA listeners. <laughs> so the, the the context for this is there's there's accusations accusations there's claim like rumors online that that Amar is a, a pro Trump person or whatever. Look, I kind of I, I'm gonna say like obviously that's always a little bit of a thing, but kind of no because I I think he doesn't. He's just a dopey dude, man. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think he just sees Trump be like, uh, Trump be like, uh, rich. I don't know. I don't even know what Trump says. <laughs> Trump says something. I can just see Trump saying something that like kind of doesn't make sense, but like if if you're dopey, sounds good. And Amar being like, totally. Yeah. You see, I mean, look, if he was a true at heart MAGA guy, do you think Poppy and Habibi would exist? It would not. That's Come true. On. He, he's building bridges, so no. That's true. Yeah, look, man, I'll give this one to you. I think we can go with uh, with Amar as the uh, best personality. He also, you know, talk about one of the criteria for this being how much people in the house like him. I don't think anybody was better liked than Amar. Mm, yeah, I agree. And by the way, he did in fact win fan favorite for the season. Okay, well then it's settled. Best personality. The number show it. I'll give it to you, Amar. Amar Santana. There we go. Who was your best guest judge of the season? This one was fun. I uh, went back and I have a real answer and a joke answer. My okay. my joke answer is Hélène de Rose, the uh, top chef France judge whose restaurant they went to in the finale and who helped judge the finale. Oh, yeah. yeah the yeah. reason she's my fake answer is because I thought she inserted the most jeopardy by completely misunderstanding the assignment. <laughs> like <laughs> at, at multiple times during the finale – they had to like explain to her, we're not judging them based on their potential as a cook yeah. here. They're, we're judging them based on how good this meal was. So she really threw like a wild card wrench there in the end in, in terms of just like completely misunderstanding the premise of the show. Um, very concerning given she's, a, she's like the Tom Colicchio of France. So That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but my real answer is actually the food critic of the Evening Standard, Jimmy Famurewa, who was a secret diner at Restaurant Wars this season and then came back as the judge for Judges Table. And I just thought, I, I loved the decision to put in the secret food critic at Restaurant Wars. I just thought it gave like such an interesting like new jeopardy to the whole thing. And uh, when he actually sat down and gave the judging and whatnot, 
I just thought like the way he talked about food, his, his points of view and whatnot. I was like, I want to read this guy's reviews, even though I'm never going to go eat in London. Interesting. That surprises me because I, I love the, I love the conceit of hiding a critic in the restaurant for restaurant wars. I think they should do that every year. That's like a great, great idea. I thought, I thought, uh, he wasn't critical enough. He, he kind of just like loved everything, right? He, the one thing he said was the second restaurant or whatever, the non-Buddha restaurant, like didn't have a cohesive menu. But I, w- I wanted more of an edge from him a little bit. I was missing that. I don't know. I feel like the easiest thing to do as a guest judge is to come on and to want to prove yourself, to prove like your big dick energy and come in and just kind of shit on <laughs> people's food. And he didn't do that. And like you, I, I do think, even the worst dish at Restaurant Wars, which was the one that Nicole went home for, which was the lobster ravioli, uh, everyone right. said nice things about flavor-wise. The thing that they dinged her on was the shape, or the, I'm sorry, the thickness of the pasta and right. the fact that it was taking her a while to get it out. But I don't think there was a whole lot to be critical when it comes to that meal. I think even the worst dish, people were saying good things about flavor-wise. That's fair enough. He d- he did have excellent vibes. I'll give him that. Also, shout out to our French Top Chef head judge because she her performance in the finale is totally what I would do. I was, it was so <laughs> relatable. I was like, I got the guy I want to win, and like I'm just gonna try to find reasons that he should win, and to totally be like he could learn the techniques. It's fine, and uh, and I, I very much related to that. It so was Jimmy like, was, a, it yeah. was like yeah, it was the weirdest thing. She was like judging like next food network star or something right like it was right, she, right. she was on a different show yeah yeah i got where she was coming from though um i will so jimmy is your choice mine was uh mine was gugan anand who came in uh for a quick fire and elimination challenge combo really good vibes and did something that i love so first of all like he's this goofy wacky like pajama pants outfits emoji challenge and and of course a highly respected chef worldwide but what I loved about his appearance was his choice to go get a beer with the contestants after after it was done. Apparently, there was like a, a moment where they were wrapping up for the day. And uh, actually, Donin told us this, I believe. And he, he kind of turned to everyone and was like, hey, can I just go say hi to the chefs? Because I really appreciate them, appreciate them like cooking for us today. And I want to say hi. Grabs a beer. And he's an inspiration to several of the folks in the room, Tom and Buddha especially. And like gives his time like that so generously. That really won me over. I had forgotten about the beer detail, and I think that is that is enough to edge this one. I mean, the fact that a judge kind of breaks that you know fourth wall and goes and talks to the contestants—that's what it's all about. So that is cool. I, initially, I was going to say like, yeah, he had a, he had an excellent challenge, and I think he's definitely in the running for best challenge, and and because mm. that was like one of the better challenges I think we've yeah. seen in Top Chef in general, right? Let alone this yeah. season. At, that was the emoji challenge, right? Where they had to like convey an emotion, basically. That's right. And then I can't remember. Fire. I can't. I can't. No, it was a quick fire. And then for the that was the quick fire. Then the elimination. I can't remember what the parameters were, but all I remember was thinking it was some of the coolest food we'd seen. I can't remember exactly what they had. It was like a like a you know push. Like has to be like visually beautiful in some ways and some like something like that. But I can't remember what the strictures were. I remember it just brought great food out of the chefs and we might be talking about some of that food in a second. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. All right. We're going Guggen. I think we can go Guggen uh, because of the beer detail. Um, I do want to just say they should definitely have 
a secret judge at Restaurant Wars of the Future again. Yes. I'll stand by that, but we can give it to Guggen for uh, for best guest judge. Worst I guest hear you judge, on that. Ledley yeah. King. Oh yeah, I forgot about him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He was he was the worst. Also, there were there were some weird like weirdly uptight British British guest judges on this season. I think there was like a, there were like the the jelly guy and the shortbread guy or something like that or the biscuit guy. That yeah. was like really weird and like strict and staid and like kind of like condescending. And I, I thought that was like an interesting. It was a little bit difficult to go through the whole season and be like, I like even three of these guest judges. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. They were giving sexual repression, but definitely <laughs> it, it added something to the, to the energy of the room where it was like, yeah, I don't yeah. know if they're going to like it because there's definitely like there, I cannot detect a single emotion on this human's face right now. <laughs> well along these lines what do you think was the best challenge of the season anticipating that you were going to go with uh the guggen one which we'll see mm. if you actually did but i decided to go with the indian style tali one uh oh, so great one yeah they were tasked with each creating their own tali and the reason i liked this is because i think it broke a lot of the chef's brains like <laughs> Typically, they have to create dishes with ingredients that all really go well together. And the whole challenge here is basically like you need to create six or seven different dishes that have nothing to do with one another other than other than balancing an entire like meal. Um, but each dish is meant to like actually contrast with the other quite heavily to make that happen. And I think that that kind of a challenge really kind of kind of challenge the chefs because it's not what they were used to doing. And I think it created some really interesting dishes and also some really interesting results. Like for example, uh, Buddha had a really bad week during the Tali one yeah. because I yep. think he just wasn't used to thinking like that as, as someone who comes into every single challenge hyper prepared he probably was like yep there's going to be a South Asian challenge we're in London mm -hmm. I'm going to make a curry I'm going to make a chutney bang, put it in a mold, you know, <laughs> but having to do this really broke him. And honestly, that was the week where I thought Buddha might, might freak out and get eliminated here. I also liked this because it eliminated Victoire finally. So that, <laughs> that put it, that put an end to my, uh, my misery of having her on my team. Uh, it's, it's a great choice. It was a great challenge. It was one that we'd been waiting for as we were talking about the season going on. The, the South Asian challenge coming in. And I think I think you might take this round because you're gonna laugh at my choice. Now one, I want to hat tip to I want to hat tip to the um the, the mimic challenge. It was the last challenge in London where they had to cook something yes. that looked like one thing and looked others. If they had performed a little better on that, I think that might have won for me. But Buddha was the only one who really like blew it out of the water and everyone else was kind of like a little off with it. But I liked that the strictures of that challenge. <laughs> my actual favorite challenge i think of the season was the fucking uh fast and furious one <laughs> it was a mise en place you're gonna you're gonna i know i know it's spawn con i know that's like the no. corniest thing i'll i'll i actually think one of the things top chef does incredibly well and i talked about this with donnie a little bit is i think they nail spawn con like they do they never make spawn con feel cheesy they come with like pretty unique takes on how to incorporate sponsors so i'm not surprised you picked the spawn con because i that's where i think they have to get even more creative with their ideas it's easy to go to london and be like 
we're going to do Indian food. We're going to do a soccer themed thing. It's hard right. to be like, what do we do with Fast and the Furious? Okay, I feel I feel less insecure about this now because I was like, am I really going to go Fast <laughs> and the Furious? But what I love about it and what I realized thinking about this, what I love about the challenges is when there's a real like, stra- like strategy component, right? Because this was basically a mise en place race, three rounds of a mise en place race, and then the winning teams or the order of the, the speed determined what, what ingredients you got to choose. And there was only one protein per round that, that the, each team could choose from. And just like the like the, the like whatever game theory of like, hey, we're going to try and like grab all the protein we can. So other teams have to be, at least one other team has to be vegetarian. And the vegetarian team ends up winning. Who does what dish for mise en place? Who has the strengths? Who have the weaknesses? I just enjoy watching them have to make those decisions as they go along. And that's why I really, I don't think it was the best food of the season necessarily, but I, I think it was one of the more fun challenge designs. My It did lead to one of my favorite moments of the season, which was Sarah absolutely beasting the lamb chops. Uh, yes. While they gave it to, I think, Gabri, who had like, he yes. acted like he had never seen a lamb chop in his entire life. He just like, he that- was doing- he was doing weird things to it, honestly. Like he was like he was like rubbing it in weird ways. He was like like trying to he was trying to like start a fire with it. I don't know what he was doing. It was uh, that was also an insane moment because Tom Tom who was on the team on Gabby's team knew how to prep lamb chops, but wanted to do like the oranges or something that Gabby knows how to do, and Gabby doesn't know how to do lamb chops. So Tom's trying to coach him through it, and like Gabby's like, I don't, I literally. I was shocked at the end when Gabri was like, me and Tom are friends because that would seem like such like a shitty moment between them. I'm like, Tom, what the fuck are you doing? You can't like throw this guy in deep water and they end up, guess what, last that round. Uh, but hilarious, hilariously enough, ended up winning the challenge despite being the one team that had no protein. So anyway, yeah, uh, one of my favorites. What do you think, man? Best challenge? I mean, I think... Fast and Furious could have happened in any se- in any, any place, right? So yep. if we're thinking about what is most pertinent to this season, I'd say let's go with the Tali. I, I, I agree with you. I also really liked how the they they forced the chefs to do different flavors right across yeah. the board. And be, no, I, I like that challenge a lot. It was a good one. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of top challenges, who do you think made the most desirable dish of the season? It's the dish that you wish – you could have jumped through the TV and eaten and or fucked, whichever whichever works for you. Yeah, 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 totally. That's how I think about most things. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a dish that you've already mentioned. And mm. the one that I kept thinking about and kept returning to in my head over the course of the season was Charbel's roasted onion with onion oh, puree, puree, chicken jus, and sumac. Now, a, a sumac twill, sorry. Now, this whole challenge was basically center vegetables and make the protein the side the side piece really so he mm. basically he was one of the boldest people there in that he didn't pick a fancy vegetable he picked the humble onion and i love onion and i love dishes that make onion sing like for example my mom used to make this pizza which was literally just onion on top and the onions got like beautifully caramelized and like golden mm. when they were in the oven. And I just remember being like, this is the best pizza of all time. It's like sweet, salty. And I just like, I could feel that that's what Charbel was conjuring with this dish. And to use that chicken zoo 
to add that sort of like savory undertone thought was a brilliant move i would have loved to eat fuck whatever this dish all day long (laughs) it's a great one i do i think the chefs also or sorry the judges rather mentioned that they were like they've never had anything like that right it was like an innovative kind of mind-blowing transformation of of the simple ingredient uh, which is really cool you don't something you don't often see it's like a top chef it's like a pearl necklace at the uh, – is that what they call it? The French Laundry's uh, the French Laundry's like signature dish or like the uh, – I, I hope it is because pearl <laughs> necklace can refer to a bunch of different stuff. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I actually think it's not called – it's not called that. It's definitely not called that. But, uh, this, is when, this is when you confuse the eat or fuck stuff. It happens. <laughs> it happens to everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, what I mean is like it's like the mole at Puyol. I should have just gone with that. Meaning yeah. like, this is like a signature dish that like people travel to your restaurant for. That's what it right. was. Given. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I I agree. And and mine, I that had crossed my mind as one of the dishes that stood out just because it was talked about high level for me. And this kind of blends into the next category as well. So I'm cheating a little bit, but it, it was the dish that just blew me away. Sarah's rib dish during the Gagan challenge, which mm. I thought was just stunning. And I actually, I have to go back and read through like what exactly is in it, but she does perfectly, perfectly prepared rib with thought it with like flower petals. I think there was like a, like a sweet sauce on it. Oh, like yeah. honey. And I remember the judges, the judges were blown away by this rib. Now we'll get to why it was the greatest injustice in a second, but I saw that and I was like, Oh, she's winning. She's winning this week because holy shit, that looks so good. I hope it's on her menu because that looks so so awesome. Um, and and just like uh, yeah, maybe maybe just like a bone on rib is something that visually appeals to me. Uh, but I that for me that was a standout. Now I will say, I think your onion choice actually has to be the most desirable this year because look, we've seen ribs before on Top Chef. It was ribs. With, it was ribs with flower petals on it. At the end of the day, could have been in any uh, kind of any context. Charbel's onion, I thought, was special because of the innovation, the simplicity, and also because I think it was our first taste of the international chefs coming through on the season. Yeah. Episode one, and it was like, what do these guys have to bring to the table? Charbel was our second to last pick in the draft. And I thought that was a special, like, sort of put a stamp on the season dish. That's the, that, that dish, like, set the tone for season 20 a little bit. And for that reason, I think it might be our most desirable. I will say also, if we're looking at foods to have intercourse with, the way you have intercourse with a rib is uh, not my preferred way, so I, I would go with the onion. Fair enough. Uh, the next category is greatest injustice, as I've teased up teased a little bit, which means who got eliminated when they didn't deserve or who should have won a challenge but didn't. Now, I'll go quick here because I've teased it already. Sarah for her rib in the Guggen Challenge, with the, which the judges raved over, didn't make top three. It was an early sign it was an early sign of the Top Chef 20 Let's Cuck Luca <laughs> subtitle for the whole season where in the whole episode where we're like, oh, damn, Sarah, like, Sarah's on Luca's team and she's about to crush. They love that dish. It doesn't even make top three. And it was so weird. Yeah, you can have this one because my greatest injustice was also Sarah related and it was really the liver. I, I put the liver down because I thought if – I struggled with characterizing it as an injustice because it is technically mm. a mistake, but the fact that her entire Top Chef like story hinges on this one dish when she probably deserved wow. that final and honestly had been probably the least like 
the the most underrated and underrecognized performer the entire way to your point right now kind of is heartbreaking but i yeah. think your your rib situation is a better like fit for this particular category so i think we go with rib yeah and i i get where you're coming from on the liver i was listening to a podcast interview with sarah and buddha actually both which was kind of interesting on pack your knives who we have to always tip our caps to for uh, introducing fantasy top chef to our lives and sarah's like I, dude i still live, like sit on the couch with my husband it's just quiet for a second six months later and we just turn to each other and go fucking liver man fucking liver <laughs> it's so tough it breaks my heart it's, it's, um, it's uh john terry slipping at the uh champions yeah, league penalty Stephen gerrard Stephen gerrard in that in that season yeah no it's it's oh it's so brutal. I can't even think about it that much. <laughs> yeah, it hurts. Now, no one hurts. Now, here, now, here's where Sarah might get some shine. I don't know. I'm curious about where you went with this category, but I'm curious who you think's most likely to succeed post-Top Chef. Now, what I, I, for this category, I mean succeed in terms of like awards, notoriety, reputation, whose career you think most takes off in the real world, which is different from Top Chef. And we should note that there are plenty of seasons where the person – who lost or not necessarily the person who won wasn't necessarily the most successful person, the runner up or third place or fourth place was. You can think maybe, you know, Shoda from Portland or Beverly from Top Chef Texas, who was, uh, I think finished third or fourth and has a Michelin star now. I don't think anyone else in wow. her season has one of those. Yeah. Um, Nina Compton from Top Chef Louisiana, who was a runner up. So is there someone, it could be Buddha to be fair, but who do you think following the show kind of, keeps it going and in, in three five years is that the james beard awards is that the michelin stars and so on i'm curious what you think it's a great point about the winners are not always the most quote-unquote successful i think this show shows us that some chefs are just excellent competition chefs and mm. maybe very successful in their restaurant but maybe don't get all of that recognition the one that comes to mind for me is brooke williamson right i think yep. maybe the greatest competitor out there i mean she she's won or done really well on her seasons of top chef she kicked butt on every tournament of champions that she's been on like she knows how to compete and it's not like her restaurants are bad like they're very successful restaurants here in los angeles supply provisions but mm -hmm. she hasn't quite you know she, she doesn't have a michelin star or anything like that right, right? so it's a good question and it's a good reminder but i do think I went really boring with this one because I do think this guy wants it so bad you can smell it. And he does seem like he has the obsessive nature of like – and that's what I think it really takes to become a Michelin star chef, right? It takes obsession. It takes like doing the same thing over and over and over again to the highest possible degree and caliber. And that's why I went with Buddha, man. I think that his, his obsession and dedication to perfecting things – at least as we've been able to see on the show, I think that's the makings of a Michelin star chef. And I would be, I would bet on him right now to in the next 10 years have multiple Michelin stars. Yeah, this is one. I, I, I'm just going to say, I think you're right on this one. And I basically was like trying to find any way to not pick Buddha, much like the judges table in the finale. But uh, <laughs> And, and I was like, who, who I want to be most successful is Sarah, right? I want Sarah to like continue to to hit those highs, right? 
Um, I was even thinking, I was like toying with maybe even an Ali, right? Who I think really like made an impression, but you know, I think like, look, it, I think it's a, it would be a difficult path up for him. And I'm not sure he has the level necessarily to get there. So I think you're right. I think it's Buddha. And I think Buddha also for the last like two years of his life. And I mean, look, for most of his life, even has like been kind of weirdly laser focused on Top Chef has been like kind yeah. of really obsessed with Top Chef. Now that he's like, possibly the goat top chef contestant he can turn his attentions to the james beards and the and the michelins of the world and i would imagine see them through so i think you're exactly right it's got to be buddha see some chefs are naturally gifted at competing and they come on these shows and they do really well because they're naturally gifted and they're good they're like fast thinkers they know how to execute consistently they're fast and all that stuff those are the brooks of the world I think you bring up an excellent point. I think the reason Buddha has been so good is because this is what he's been obsessed with. His being good on this is more a signal of the fact that he he has that ability to obsess over something so much that he becomes the best at it. And I think he's going to apply mm. that and he's going to take that and apply it to his own restaurant someday. And you can see from the way that he idolizes the Michelin star chefs that that's most likely his ultimate goal. Yeah, I think those are the people he wants to be his peers ultimately. And certainly Top Chef helps with that, but I, I think you're exactly right. He wants to be remembered among like the the Guggins and and that that level. So uh yeah, excited to see what's what's to come. Now, this brings up a curious question. Whose restaurant would we most like to visit in real life? I got a joke answer and a real answer for you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> joke answer, Tom's. Caviar on the beach <laughs> at sea. Hey, it's up. not not bad actually. Not bad. You're never getting me in the sea, but you know, like yeah. not not a bad shout in terms of an experience. Go ahead. My real answer, however, is Ali. I mean, I mm. uh, I because I was thinking along the lines of who is most likely to succeed and what would their restaurants look like. I think it was a close call between like Sarah and uh, Ali for me. But if I'm thinking about the type of food that I like to eat. I do love to eat a Middle Eastern feast. I'm not, you know, racist towards that cuisine <laughs> like somebody else I know uh, on this podcast. For me, that's one of my favorites. So I, if I'm thinking about where do I want to go, where do I want to, you know, get a resi reservation to or hit that notify button, it's Ali's restaurant. That I, I should have anticipated that. That makes total sense to me, man. Uh, I he was not on my list. For for the reasons you mentioned, yeah, but 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 I, I I like that shout because he is all he's someone I'm really intrigued by. He didn't really seem like a guy like you know who who would really take the season by storm. The whole first half, he was like the MVP halfway through the show. Like yeah. he was really strong. So I I'd be curious to see what what he offers up in his restaurant. So look, Gabri was up near the top for me. We love Mexican food. We love high-end Mexican food. When Gabri um, yeah. kind of opens his own thing, I don't think he has a restaurant right now, but if he does, I would love to go there. My answer is Sarah, man. I, I just want to eat Sarah's food. I, yeah, I, I we, we, during, during this season, I was telling you before we started recording, uh, my girlfriend and I have watched five other seasons of Top Chef over the course of the last 14 weeks. We've been really obsessed. I think the, the quality of season 20 really like sparked us. And we've been going back to Pops of California, Texas, Louisiana, and uh, Kentucky. And I got to see Sarah go the first time around. Honestly, if I had seen Kentucky before we did our draft, Sarah might have gone number one overall because I was such no a fan of her. No way. 
I mean, look, it's unlikely because Buddha is such a stud. But like, I was like, oh shit, no, Sarah is for real. Also, by the way, so is Amar, who we really disrespected in our draft quite a bit. <laughs> uh, he was he was a real badass in California. Uh, but Sarah's food, the, the kind of food she cooks, is just like exactly the kind of food I want to eat. And uh, if we ever find ourselves in Kentucky, we're definitely hitting that up. Yeah, I Sarah would have gone first on my board. I. Uh had seen Kentucky and I wanted to pick her first part of it was just because I refused to pick Buddha uh just because it seemed too easy uh probably wouldn't have been the smartest thing to do in hindsight it definitely wouldn't have been the smartest thing to do but that doesn't surprise <laughs> me man Sarah's a real badass Sarah's a real badass now question for you and this this we're going to look ahead a bit but do you think when we talked about the top chef fantasy season this year in the draft we determined that the winner would get a free meal as, as paid for by the other at Vespertine in LA, which was Jonathan Gold's last number one restaurant, I believe, on his top 100 list. Unfortunately, it seems as though Vespertine has only shifted to doing private events and not serving consistent dinners, if I understand their website correctly. My question is this. One, where are you taking me this year? Because <laughs> I'm excited and I have ideas if you need them. Two, I wonder if there's a way, speaking of the best, the restaurant we'd most like to visit in real life, if there's a way in future Top Chef fantasy seasons for us to make a, a, a contestant's restaurant the prize. Now, that might be difficult location-wise. We'll have to see based on who's there. But I kind of like, like keeping it in the world of Top Chef in some way rather than just going to Best Routine or some other expensive restaurant. So I'll throw that out there for you. But for this year, where, where, where am I eating for free? Well, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to give you a menu of options. I was going to give you three different routes we could go with this. One route okay. was to just one route was just to go let's pick a Vespertine equivalent, right? Like one of the like best tasting menus in the city right now, like I don't know if it's like Cato or Hayato or like yeah, um, Anaka yeah. or something like that and you know, we could yeah. really fall out at one of those places. My other suggestion was I did some, you know, light research and I saw the list of like 20 to 25 uh, restaurants owned by Top Chef alumni in Los Angeles. And I could surprise you by taking you to one of the nicer restaurants, right, of a Top Chef alumnus. Um, and we could, you know, honor the show in that way. Or finally, I could take you on a classic LA food pod crawl around the city it wouldn't be like the higher end places because i'm not made of money but we could, <laughs> we could do like lower to mid-tier spots including some top chef places and i take you like you know on me food crawl around the city get your education interesting up. those are those are three options i toyed around with that's interesting i actually went a very similar direction for for the first two in particular I'm going to throw a last one at you and I want to see what you think. Cause I think this might be the most, the most top chef appropriate option. It's our first season of a public first time ever doing a public top chef fantasy challenge. What if we celebrate by going to craft Los Angeles, the home of the God. I know Kraft's not the sex sexiest restaurant, like on the landscape. I know there's cooler places, but look at some point we got to give Tom his flowers. How can we go, go around being the biggest Top Chef fans in the world and not have eaten Tom Colicchio's food. Yeah. So I will, I will toss that out there as an option as well. The only, I think it would be between that and the surprise 
former contestant restaurant. Those would be the two I go for. Why don't I? Why don't we put it up for a vote on uh, on the ground? Mm. Love it, love it. Okay, let's do that. We'll do that. The, we'll have these four options, and we'll put it up for a vote on the gram. And whatever our our uh, you know dear listeners want, that's what you'll be getting. That that sounds fair to me, man. I like we're keeping it in the family. Hey, great season of Top Chef Fantasy. I had a good time doing this. I'm sure you did too. <laughs> I uh, I absolutely did not. My question for you is: Last time when I had Daniel on, I facetiously asked him if he wanted to be my partner instead of you next year um, because I was tired of getting my ass whooped. But what I really, but what we really landed on was: What if we expand the pool next year and we get some of our friends to join us? I fucking love it. I would love to finally have a challenger. It's kind of like. <laughs> You know when you win and it's too easy and it becomes like less enjoyable because it's so easy? No. I want to have a real challenge. I think Daniel could provide anyone else. I think it would be a blast to have other folks involved in this. So absolutely, yes. Let's let's blow this up, man. All right. We're going to create a mini celebrity uh, L.A. food uh, you know, celebrity <laughs> pool, uh, kind of like Bill Simmons, uh, Bill Simmons, you know, John Hamm uh, football league. Fantasy football league. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I want well, to congratulate hey. you. you. And also, hey, great job your first time hosting a segment. I think uh, we can – I have notes. I have some notes. Uh, it's not a no-notes performance, but, you know, <laughs> good job. Appreciate it, man. I was expecting notes the whole way. No notes are scary, man. No notes is a scary expectation. There's nowhere to go if exactly. you have no notes. So yeah. we'll, 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 we'll approve from here. This was a blast, man. Shout out to Top Chef. Shout out to you. Great job. And uh, listeners, if you're afraid that there will be no more Top Chef content between now and next season, do not be afraid. We've come up with a bunch of ideas to keep the Top Chef chatter up. Uh, So this will remain the LA and Top Chef food podcast. Don't you worry. Saul, Father Saul, great job by you. Thank you so much, man. Great job by you, buddy. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Karen Palmer and to Father Saul. If you like what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.